Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 15 of the podcast, History Does You. Today, we'll be covering the Mexican-American War, and we had an interesting interview with Dr. Peter Gardino, who is a professor of history at Indiana University. But before we get into that, always feel free to subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to keep up with upcoming episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at History Does You to keep up with different things that uh, we're doing, especially with episodes and upcoming uh, episodes uh, as we did a poll over Instagram a couple of days ago. Uh, we are doing the Mexican-American War today and we will be doing uh, the Arab Spring next week, which I'm pretty excited about. I think both of those events are obviously very different, but also very unique in the way that they affected uh, the regions. And before we get into that, I would like to give a shout out to uh, the Instagram account, educational history memes. Uh, this is a pretty funny uh, account, and I always enjoy these sort of parody accounts that are able to integrate memes into history. Uh, so I would definitely recommend uh, following him. He does uh, ancient history, uh, medieval, modern history, a very wide variety. And every time I see a post, it always get a pretty good laugh. So go and follow him at educational.history.memes on Instagram. One more time, that's educational.history.memes. And again, we'll be talking about the Mexican-American War today. And it's a really interesting conflict because I think it's one of those conflicts that often gets overlooked in American history because it's sort of a footnote before the American Civil War, which sort of dominates this sort of time and Reconstruction, and then the Industrial Revolution that we go through sort of in that period between 1850 and 1900. So the period between, I think, 1800 and 1850 is rather unique because we see the development of a lot of American foreign policy. We see the development of this idea of manifest destiny. And there's a lot of different driving factors that lead to the Mexican-American War. And we'll definitely get into that before we get uh, to the interview. But I think one of the key things that comes out of this war is, for one, there's a very large swath of land that the United States is able to acquire through this war. Um, much of the Western United States comes under the control of the United States. And obviously at this time, the issue of slavery was the number one issue, obviously with the Missouri Compromise between the Northern states and the Southern states. Every single time a new state was being added, there always had to be this sort of compromise about who, what states would be allowed to have slavery and what states would not, or would not allow slavery. So. This created a whole new dynamic in this uh, question of slavery because we had just acquired all this new land. And in the future, presumably, people would be moving there and new states would eventually be integrated into the Union. And again, this all goes to the question of, well, would slavery be allowed and would slavery not be allowed? So I think the Mexican-American War was a driving factor into the lead up to the American Civil War. I think it supercharged tensions between the North and South to a whole new level because of the disagreement that was going to come with the, the uh, expansion of the United States. Um, and I don't want to talk too much, but uh, the only last thing I'd recommend before going to the interview, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, I would encourage you uh, to leave a review, uh, give us a rating. I'm always looking for feedback on ways to improve it. I personally think that it's improved uh, a ton between you know our first episode up until you know this episode, and I'm definitely going to keep doing interviews every single episode because, again, I, I really enjoy doing this because it's always 
I learn just as much as I hope you guys are learning about the way that different historical events, you know, have ripple effects across, you know, time and all of that. So again, if you're on Apple Podcasts, I would really encourage you to leave us a review, give us a rating, just go on the podcast app. Um, if you would like to write us some feedback on what you think we can improve, I'm totally open to that too. Or if there are topics that you want to see, just feel free to comment on a post on Instagram or send me a direct message or again, give us a rating about what, or give us a comment on Apple Podcasts about uh, like what you would like to see. And I kind of screwed up the uh, the interview, so it was a pretty long interview. It was 50 minutes, uh, but I usually do most of these interviews over Skype, but I forgot to click record when this is happening, so I sort of skipped the uh, bio, so I'm going to do that right now just so you know who he is. Uh, so we had Dr. Peter Gardino on, who, again, is a professor at Indiana University. Uh, his work includes peasants, politics, and the formation of Mexico's national state, uh, 1857, uh, the time of liberty, popular political culture in Oaxaca, 1750-1850, and the Den March, a history of the Mexican-American War, which won the Distinguished Book Prize for Non-U.S. History from the Society for Military History, the Bolton Johnson Prize from the Conference on Latin American History for the Best English Language Book on Any Aspect of Latin History. Um, and I had just asked him the question, what is your favorite part of history to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And why have you focused so much on the Mexican-American War? Um, so we'll just have the ad right there. And then it'll be just him kind of talking about that. And then the rest of the interview is much smooth. So I apologize for that. I'm still learning it. I will not try to screw this again, but I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. I think it's super interesting, and he has a ton of knowledge on uh, the Mexican-American War. And I think it attracts me for various reasons. Uh, I think the most important reason, I think that a lot of things that we take for granted were really, uh, those things were really laid in that, in that part of history. A lot of things about the fact that we all theoretically belong to nations, that we're all theoretically citizens of nations with some uh, ability to choose our leaders, okay? Um, and also the beginning of the sort of industrial world economy, which is so important today. I think they, they all sit pretty firmly um, um, in this period. And I've always been very fascinated with how this played out in the lives of ordinary people and how the decisions that ordinary people made uh, really um, helped shape these great big events. I'm always looking for connections between the sort of big developments and the decisions that, you know, Joe Smith in, in the, on the frontier of Indiana makes or that, you know, Juan Lopez, uh, a peasant in Mexico makes. And the follow up on that, what are some of the challenges that you have encountered while researching history? So the biggest challenge for me always is uh, trying to find documents where you can find out about the, the things that relatively obscure people did, relatively poor and obscure people, um, and, and the things that they said about what they did, their, their visions of what was going on and of what was important in their lives, right? And this is a challenge whether you're working in a relatively literate uh, place like the United States or whether you're working in a place where few people knew how to read and write, like Mexico at that time was. Um, and and uh, you address the challenge by, you know, looking around very creatively for different kinds of documents that capture the voices of these people. Um, and that's, that's always the sort of big challenge. I think the second big challenge always is connecting their actions and what they're saying to what we used to call the you know, great white man view of history, where it was about what Washington said or what Lincoln said and what they did. 
um, or what General Lee did, right? Um, and one thing, I'm, one reason I'm attracted to like the what they call the new history of the military, the new military history, is that's also very much in the same vein of like trying to understand what ordinary people did during wartime and how that shaped events just as much as the decisions of leaders. So we have some background on that, and we'll be switching the gears to what we're talking about today, which is the Mexican-American War. And to start off doing some background on these countries that were involved, um, and to start, how did Mexico end up gaining its independence, considering that it had been a longtime Spanish colony? So it had been a longtime Spanish colony, um, and um, in the early 19th century, uh, beginning in 1808, Mexico got swept up in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, Napoleon uh, uh, worked this this very interesting intrigue in which he uh, invaded one of his allies. Spain was one of his allies, not an, not an enemy. Um, invaded them. Theoretically, he was going through Spain to get to Portugal, but he took the opportunity while he was doing so to remove the Spanish king and put his own brother uh, uh, Joseph Napole- Joseph Bonaparte on the throne of Spain. And this led to chaos in Spain. Immediately, people revolted against that. And it led to decisions for all the people in the Spanish Empire. Well, what are we going to, who are we going to obey here? Are we going to obey this new king that Napoleon imposed? Are we going to try to make decisions for ourselves? Um, what are we going to do? Um, and this would prove to be an opportunity for um, certain people in Mexico who wanted uh, Mexico to have a more autonomy. Originally, they were after more autonomy rather than straight independence. Uh, to begin working toward that. And eventually they recruited many uh, relatively poor people, uh, especially mine workers and peasants, into their cause. And it began this great war of independence. It lasted for 11 years, was very destructive um, uh, from 1810 to 1821, um, and then ended up in a sort of compromise in which um, the the former royalists and and the, the rebels who were called the insurgents um, got together and decided, well, it's time to end this. And the way this is going to end is Mexico is going to become independent. And when it gained its independence, it originally started off as a monarch, but then switched over to republic. How did that end up happening and how successful was that effort? So the original idea of when they had made this compromise in favor of independence was to bring over a prince from the Spanish royal family to be the new monarch of an independent Mexico. Well, no Spanish prince wanted to come. The royal family was against the whole deal in the first place. And so the the military officer who who, who basically made the deal, a guy named Agustin de Iturbide, decided, well, then I'll be the monarch. And he proved not to be very popular. Uh, People thought he was getting, uh, being very pretentious about this. Um, and there also was this belief that, back, that, that, that Mexico um, should not only be a republic, but that it should also be a, a more of a, a federal republic in which the states had substantial power. Um, so he was overthrown on that basis, and they wrote Mexico's first um, independent constitution, which was a, a very federalist constitution in which the states were very important and the, and the national government was a relatively weak um, national government. So we have some background on the government and how it gained its independence. Uh, another question I have is, did Mexico ever attempt to colonize territories that they inherited from the Spanish Empire north of the Rio Grande River, or did they end up leaving it be? So there already were uh, many people of Mexican descent living um, in some places uh, north of the river that eventually became part of the, the southwestern U.S. This was especially true in California and New Mexico. And in California, 
uh, they hadn't discovered any any um, gold yet, and so they were basically running a cattle economy, in which they were um, raising cattle and um, they were um, selling the hides and the tallow, which was used to make um, um, candles, to merchants who mostly shipped these things to Boston. Right. In New Mexico, there was more of an agricultural economy um, and also some sheep raising, and there were a lot of people of Spanish descent in New Mexico. In Texas, there were relatively few, although there were some. The problem was there weren't too many of these people, especially outside of California, because in most of this area, it's very dry. It's still very dry today. Okay, um, And so how do you make a living when it's very dry? Well, in some of the places, um, especially in places like Texas, you could have a cattle economy, right? But cattle economies don't support very dense populations. The cattle have to spread way up to, to find the grass they need to eat, right? Um, that also, this, this dense, this, this very, um, not very dense population is very vulnerable that people want to steal their cattle. Um, and in this case, it was particularly the Comanches, um, to some extent the Apaches, who were constantly stealing the Mexicans' cattle and often stealing Mexicans, um, especially Mexican children and Mexican women, to work for them as slaves processing the cattle. Um, and very often they were selling their products to the U.S., from the, especially uh, cattle hides um, to the U.S., so it was very difficult to maintain a very big presence, um, um, you know, in, in these very dry areas. Most of the things that allowed us to later develop the Southwest that, that we know happened later, like the discovery of mineral deposits all over the place, you know, silver especially and copper especially hadn't happened yet, right? Um, so there was no, there was nothing that was going to bring a lot of people to work those mineral deposits. Um, the the irrigation that uh, farmers in the Southwest rely on now to do things like make, you know, to grow our winter fruits and vegetables. That wasn't possible before modern machinery. Okay. Um, and so, you know, they couldn't build those dams and dig those canals. Um, so that kind of agriculture wasn't possible. So there was no particular reason for most Mexicans to leave relatively comfortable lives in central Mexico where there was enough um, rainfall to, for them to grow their staple crops and try to move up north. And for that reason, there just weren't very many um, uh, Mexicans at all um, in the area that, that became the southwest of the U.S. later. And to switch gears a little bit to the other country involved, the United States, can you explain some of the background or key events that were happening in the United States and the lead up to the Mexican-American War? So there were two big things going on. Um, one is what people call the market revolution. The U.S. was becoming more and more uh, a sort of capitalist market economy uh, this was happening um, in the big cities of the East. This was happening in, in um, what is now the Midwest. This was happening in, in what is now the Southeast, uh, where more and more commodities were flowing all over. More and more people were tied into this commercial economy. And the U.S. is becoming very prosperous, okay, and, and becoming really one of the most prosperous nations on Earth. The second thing that went along with this is what people call Jacksonian democracy. Um, they began opening up the vote to all white males, regardless of income. And that led to mass party politics, um, including the origins of the Democratic Party that we still have today. Um, and it also led to um, a, a sort of more nefarious um, um, kind of you know, underside of this was it was white males. And in fact, the deal that was cut with poor white males was, well, yes, you can participate in, in, in this democracy, um, as long as you help us keep other people in place. And the other people being kept in place were especially African-Americans um, in the South, many of them were enslaved, and also Native Americans uh, who were kicked out of what is now the South and kicked out of what is now the Midwest 
um, so that the land could be turned over to these poor white males for the most part, or to offer more opportunity for plantation owners often in the South. So these two things went together. It's like the celebration of this wonderful progress and democracy, but along with it was a lot of repression um, against African-Americans, against Native Americans. Women actually lost rights during this period also. Um, and later on, this kind of more highly racialized society extended to Mexican-Americans. And when did Americans begin to immigrate into areas like Texas and New Mexico, what is now the Southwest? Was it encouraged by the U.S. government or was this simply people seeking new land to settle? So there were two groups of people who immigrated into this area um, and, 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 and they basically didn't do it at the same time. The sort of first wave, especially in New Mexico and California, were American merchants um, who moved into these areas as part of this this market revolution I was talking about. Um, they were interested in commodities that they could get from these areas. In New Mexico, um, it was silver and furs. Um, in California, it was mostly hides and tallow. They moved in there, um, and they very often married into Mexican families, um, very often converted to Catholicism, and basically assimilated into Mexican society, because you needed to have this sort of contact to buy the commodities that you wanted, right? Um, and and they, they didn't marry into poor families, they married into wealthy families. Um, a bit later, um, you know, first in Texas and then later in California, you began to get Americans who moved in there looking for land. Um, in the case of Texas, they were definitely looking to extend the cotton economy into Texas. They wanted to bring their slaves in. They negotiated contracts with the Mexican government under which they were going to bring in settlers into Texas. Um, and California, which happened about 10 years later after Texas, uh, the Texas Revolution and Texas became independent, they were looking for agricultural land and they often were looking to kind of replicate this thing that had happened in Texas. Well, first a lot of Americans will move in, then they'll make it independent uh, and, and, and break it off from Mexico. None of this was actively encouraged by the American government. It was encouraged a lot by many American entrepreneurs and many American newspapers, um, especially um, in the case of, of, of Texas um, um, and also so California, especially uh, American newspapers that were in the great um, uh, watershed of the Mississippi, all around, up the Mississippi River, the Ohio River, the Missouri River, they were looking for the next big opportunity. They constantly played up how great the land was in Texas, how great the land was in California, what were the possibilities there. Um, and they encouraged a lot of this immigration. The immigration to California was almost entirely illegal. Um, uh, it wasn't according to Mexican law. The immigration to Texas was mostly legal at first, and then a lot of illegal uh, Americans arrived. Um, and, you know, so eventually, uh, going back to those merchants who, 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 who uh, had assimilated into Mexican society, when these places uh, eventually joined the U.S., these merchants were willing to go back to being Americans, right? Um, they were perfectly happy to do that, okay? Uh, but it seems that when they first moved in there, especially in the 1820s, the early 1830s, they really didn't have that thought at all. Uh, they really felt like they were making fortunes for themselves by marrying into the prominent families of the place and having these connections to the U.S. economy. And that it wasn't necessary to be an American citizen to be happy. You could be a Mexican citizen in California uh, and a former American citizen and be perfectly happy. So did this idea of manifest destiny play any role in this sort of movement towards the Southwest, or was this more of an obsolete idea that was developed later when Americans began to move farther out West? So it was it was a brand new idea then, um, and people actually um, are, are divided about who actually coined the phrase manifest destiny. Um, 
but it was it was a relatively brand new idea at that point. And and uh, and and people were sort of beginning, especially newspaper editors, were getting to push this idea. Uh, it goes along with this encouragement of, of immigration to California, especially that, that, that the U.S. had a manifest destiny to, 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 to occupy the entire continent. Um, it became even stronger, though, after the war, uh, because the success in the war and the success they had in prying this territory away from Mexico, if anything, made people believe, hey, those manifest destiny people, they had it right. And a little bit of a side question, but did the British or French empires attempt to influence politics in either the United States or Mexico, despite the sort of development of the Monroe Doctrine and the overall decline in colonies that the two empires possessed? So France, not very much until the 1860s, um, which happens later than the, than the Mexican-American War. Um, the British a bit. Um, they wanted uh, Mexico to be more their friend than than the U.S.'s friend. And so they were competing for diplomatic influence in Mexico right from the beginning of Mexican independence. And then um, after Texas became independent, they tried to do the same thing in Texas. They had this idea that they could um, keep Texas, you know, help Texas survive as an independent nation in which British capital would help develop Texas and the Texans would sell cotton to Great Britain. Okay. Um, and that, and that this would be um, a good counterweight um, and to the to the to the to the huge um, control of the cotton market that the U.S. had, um, but they rapidly uh, moved away from that. Um, at a certain time, certain Mexicans, as the war loom, thought, "Well, the, we're going to be okay because the Brits are going to be on our side." But it turned out Britain was not at all interested in fighting war in the U.S. And in fact. Britain really, um, um, you know, tried to avoid that at all costs. Um, and so, so they negotiated over Oregon. Um, they negotiated over the boundary with Maine earlier. Um, and so they, they didn't, Britain was, had its interest in Europe, had other interests in the world. Fighting another war with the U.S. was, was not something they wanted. Now, they thought it was possible. You know, if you go up into Canada now, I mean, some of the, some of the historical sites in Canada are forts that were built in the 1840s and the 1830s to try to protect key Canadian things from an impossible American invasion. There's one, for instance, in Kingston, Ontario, uh, called Fort McHenry. Um, so, I mean, you know, they, they, they thought war was possible, but they really wanted to avoid it. And generally, when did Mexico and the United States begin to come into conflict? Was it over a certain piece of land or was there a political leader in either country that wanted war? What sort of led to this conflict? So President Polk um, at, at really wanted um, um, territory in California above all. Okay, um, he wanted to force Mexico into selling that territory, and he took the annexation of Texas to the United States as the opportunity to do this. Okay, he thought he could basically sort of strong arm Mexico into selling this territory, which the Mexicans had really no interest in selling. Um, and the way he decided to do this was. He took pretty much the entire U.S. Army, which had before this had been scattered in frontier posts and, and coastal forts uh, to protect American seaports, and he concentrated it in Texas um, at the boundary of, of what was then Texas, which is actually very near Corpus Christi, Texas today on the coast, and it was on the coast so they could supply it by, by sea. And um, what was the, the boundary of the old Mexican province of Texas was a river called the Nueces River that flows from the Gulf Coast, you know, flows to the Gulf Coast from the interior, right? 
um, Polk claimed that the boundaries of the, the river that we now call the Rio Grande River, right? Um, and so he decided that to, to do this strong arming, he marched that army from the Nueces River to the Rio Grande River. And he deliberately set that army up opposite Matamoros, which is the, the biggest town in northern Texas at that point, which was a, a seaport through which the Mexicans uh, were growing cotton in the, in the Rio Grande Valley and exporting it through Matamoros to New Orleans and then on to ships to Europe. Um, and so his idea was, well, I will show them that I really mean business. They will then sell me this territory. Okay? And the Mexicans were absolutely uninterested in selling the territory. Um, and, they, and, and they also were unconvinced that the U.S. was really that great a threat. And they had reasons to be unconvinced of that. Um, in the War of 1812, the U.S. had done very poorly, uh, especially on land. Um, they, well, more accurately, they defeated the Native American tribes of the Southeast and, 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 the, and the Midwest. They were unable to accomplish much against the British at all. <coughs> um, so the, the, the Mexicans saw the Americans as a little bit of a paper tiger. And so, what? So, oh, sorry. So the Americans say, well, okay, we were in disputed territory, and then the Max, a Mexican cavalry patrol defeated an American cavalry patrol. Um, but it wasn't very. It was only disputed territory to the U.S. It wasn't disputed territory to anyone in the world. And in fact, um, Ethan Allen Hitchcock, who was the the uh, staff aide to General Taylor, whose forces they were. Uh, was, you know, wrote in his diary that it was ludicrous that, 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 that there was even any pretension that this was any U.S. territory at all. We were on Mexican soil. Um, and uh, once that, once the, the politicians in Washington heard about that initial clash, um, they uh, used it to, to, to authorize not only a declaration of war, but the recruitment of thousands and thousands of volunteers to fight in this war dramatically expanding the army because this, the army was simply too small to fight Mexico at that point. And when was war officially declared and who actually did it first? The Mexicans never declared war. Um, they never issued any declaration of war against the U.S. They simply defended themselves. Um, uh, the U.S. declared war in May 1846 um, at the same time in the same bill that authorized the recruitment of thousands of volunteers. And how was the news of war received in the United States and in Mexico? So in the U.S., it was a, a weird combination of fear because they thought that Taylor's army down there in the Rio Grande was very much at risk. So they were worried about that, um, but also a sort of euphoria, kind of war euphoria. So these, when they went through um, the Mississippi watershed, the, up the Mississippi River and the Ten Tennessee River and the Ohio River, and the Missouri River recruiting volunteers for this war, there was just a huge euphoria about it. Many, many people signed up. Um, their, their feeling was they needed to defend American honor. And by the way, they would also get this land from Mexico, uh, which would be you know, good for everybody. Um, very much, uh, these were areas that had been the frontier before, and, they, uh, and, and so they, they really felt like they should expand the frontier. Um, in Mexico, it was mostly anger. Uh, not so much fear at first as anger. It's like, well, how could they possibly do this? Um, um, and they also started to mobilize their forces as quickly as they could. And how did the respective medias cover this war? So this is an interesting point. So um, the, in, the, in the U.S. Army, okay, the people who actually um, um, did the writing for the media were soldiers. Okay. They were what they called war correspondents, and it comes from the word correspondence, which is like writing letters back and forth. So they were soldiers who, you know, in addition to 
being in the war, would write letters to their hometown newspapers reporting what was going on, and those letters were the, the newspaper reports on the war. There were very few like professional journalists involved in this at all, um, and this was typical of journalism of the day, too, that there were very few professional journalists. Um, and they, these people were all, were, were generally speaking, very pro-war, okay? Um, there were op-ed writers writing, especially in the Northeast of the U.S., that this war was an unjust war, that this war was a war to expand slavery, um, and that this was a bad thing. And at first, this cry was taken up mostly by abolitionists, but then it extended um, further, and especially into Whig newspapers. But generally speaking, for the first half or so of the war, the, the, the newspaper coverage was very favorable um, to the United States. And it only started to change when some correspondents began to write about American atrocities committed against Mexican civilians, uh, which really sort of started around February 1847, about halfway through the war. Um, and that's when some of the coverage started to turn uh, a little bit sour on the U.S. Uh, Mexican newspapers um, uh, published mostly official dispatches for, for, for the war news itself, and war opinion was very much in favor of mobilizing, you know, the opinion pieces were very much in favor of mobilizing people um, to fight the U.S., um, mobilizing people, mobilizing re economic resources, um, everything possible to, to, to fight the U.S. And generally, what was the makeup of the Mexican and U.S. armies? Were these professional soldiers? Were they mostly people from militias or were they part-time soldiers? Uh, who were the people that were part of these armies? So each country had two kinds of soldiers, okay? And um, in each country, one of those kinds of soldiers were professional soldiers. Um, and the U.S., these professional soldiers uh, included both officers, many of whom were educated at West Point, kind of young middle-class officers, and men who had signed up uh, to, to, to be in the regular army because they had a difficult time making a living. People who were very poor, often immigrants, but not always immigrants. Um, and they mostly were signed up in eastern cities, um, and and um, they signed up actually during peacetime and then found themselves in the middle of this war. Uh, the Mexican regular army was, was kind of like that in the sense that it had kind of middle class officers, often pretty well trained officers. And then the people who were in the regular army were the poorest of the poor, only in that case, um, the Mexican government was so poor that even the poorest of the poor would not voluntarily sign up to be in the army. So they conscripted men. Um, they mostly went around and, uh, you know, picked who they thought were not very useful to the society, and they forced them into the army. But both the U.S. and, and, and Mexico deployed a lot of people who were volunteers. In the Mexican case, they were militia. They were called the National Guard. They were respectable um, people of all classes, some relatively wealthy, a lot of middle class, a lot of artisans um, who signed up um, to fight in defense of their communities. Um, and unlike the people in the regular army, they were often married. Um, and then in the U.S., there were these volunteer regiments, um, much like Civil War volunteer regiments. They were signed up in this sort of war fever at the beginning of the war. They were mostly from relatively um, um, respectable, relatively well-off families, especially from this Mississippi watershed I keep talking about, um, uh, who signed up. And they were they were mostly young men. Uh, who had not married yet, and they were looking for adventure and for pay. Um, and uh, they very often were people who kind of bought into Manifest Destiny, the notion of Manifest Destiny, and very much bought into Jacksonian democracy, the notion that they were citizens and they were fighting as citizens, 
And the notion also that as white males, they were superior to people of color, right, um, and superior to women. And this caused all sorts of problems for them once they were in Mexico. And generally, what was the respective strategies for the U.S. and Mexico armies? So originally, the U.S. thought, um, and Polk definitely thought this, that by invading the northern part of Mexico, he would force Mexico to the negotiating table, which to him was the table at which he was going to force them to sell California, especially, but also New Mexico, right? So this is what he wanted to do. So the U.S., after the initial battles, which were right um, in, in, in what is now Texas along the Rio Grande, the U.S. invaded northern Mexico and, 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 and fairly soon, um, after a few months, took northern Mexico's largest city, a city called Monterey. But this was not enough. Okay, and it rapidly became, became um, obvious that this was not enough for two reasons. First of all, the Mexicans continued to refuse to negotiate. And secondly, from Monterey going further south, any invading army would have to cross very difficult desert. It was not very feasible for you know, an army in the absence of motorized transport to cross this desert and invade Mexico from the north. So they switched to another strategy under which they, they, they put together another army led by Winfield Scott and invaded um, coastal Mexico through Veracruz, uh, our first amphibious invasion ever, um, landing at Veracruz and then marching from there the relatively short route up into the interior to take Mexico City and thereby force Mexico to to uh, to to uh, negotiate. This was eventually successful, <coughs> although at a much greater cost than they realized it was going to be. Uh, but and it took you know quite a few months for them to accomplish that. Also, the Mexican strategy was pretty clear. It was, we need to pin them in the north, keep them as far away from us as possible. And they were very successful in pinning the, the Americans in the north. Um, and the, the, and then once the invasion of, of, of the coast happened, the notion was, we need to pin them on the coast. Because in the coast, um, in the summer, um, at that time, uh, many mosquitoes carried yellow fever. And yellow fever was extremely dangerous um, to people who had not been exposed to it before. Um, it had been, it, it, you know, yellow fever had destroyed Napoleon's effort to reconquer Haiti, for instance. Okay, um, and they knew this. The Mexicans totally knew this, and so their notion was, <clears throat> well, we're going to we're going to basically fortify. You know, from there you march up into the interior. We're going to we're going to make our stand um, right at the edge of the yellow fever zone, um, and that turned out to be unsuccessful. Um, they lost this battle called Cerro Gordo. Um, and that allowed Scott's, Scott's army to escape the yellow fever zone. But if you look at both what the Mexicans were saying, and what Scott was saying, they were, they didn't know yellow fever was, was, was spread by mosquitoes, but what they were talking, their, their strategy for both sides was based on the yellow fever. Like Scott, I've got to get out of the coastal zone quickly because the, the yellow fever is going to kill my army. And the Mexicans said, we've got to keep him in there because the yellow fever will kill his army if we keep him in there. So they were really thinking in very, in very environmental terms um, about this strategy. And now we can get in a little bit more detail about the different theaters of the war. And my first question is, how quickly did the United States try to move into California? So this is an interesting subject because it seems that Polk was preparing for this long before. Okay, because he had sent a so-called exploring party, but a very well-armed exploring party into California led by a guy named John Fremont um, months before the war. Um, and they were there already, okay? Um, and it seems that, that, that one of their tasks was to combine with American settlers in California and lead a revolt in California. They were soon aided by the American Navy. We had a very large Navy. 
because we were such a commercial country, we had ships all over the place. Um, and, you know, we, we, we built, you know, for the, compared to the size of our country, a very, very large Navy. And we had a Pacific squadron already because they were there protecting American whaling ships and American commerce. And so we used the sailors of the Pacific squadron combined with Fremont's men and California settlers. And we were able to take California fairly quickly, but we had difficulty holding on to it. Uh, because after the ships of the squadron left, the Californians revolted against the U.S., um, and they almost succeeded in driving the U.S. out. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the California story. And was there any action up in the Pacific Northwest, or was it generally confined to California? It was confined to California, um, um, California and New Mexico. So the Pacific Northwest, we had just negotiated a treaty with Great Britain, which gave us Oregon and Washington, um, and the British certainly were in no mood to fight, um, and there weren't any, any any Mexicans up there. So so that was it was relatively quiet. So like it, even as the war was going on, settlers were moving down the Oregon Trail into Oregon, um, and, and and you know they worried about Native Americans, but they didn't really worry about Mexicans at all. And what role did the U.S. Navy play during the war? It had a huge role. Um, First of all, as I just mentioned, um, it was it was crucial to taking California, okay, absolutely crucial to taking California. But the bigger role, which most people don't know about, is that the the Navy had had um, a, a, a ultimately very influential role in the war's outcome because it blockaded Mexican ports. Like Mexico, um, like the U.S. and practically every country on earth, was heavily dependent upon customs duties uh, for the government's revenue, right? And so when you blockaded these ports, what it meant was that they couldn't collect these customs revenues. The biggest problem the Mexican government had during this war was lack of financial resources. Um, they didn't have the money, okay? Um, um, uh, you know, they, they had a hard time feeding their soldiers. Their soldiers had very poor equipment, right? Um, they, their soldiers were mostly using muskets left over from the Napoleonic Wars that they had bought at a very cheap price from British merchants. Um, and so they're in this situation where they desperately need money, and then the U.S. Navy blockades the coast and strangles their government revenues that way. Um, and, 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 and so in that way, it was, the Navy was absolutely crucial for this war. And generally, the decisive campaign was Winfred Scott's campaign in Mexico. What happened during that campaign, and was it generally successful? It ended up being very successful, um, but it was, it was very difficult. Um, so they landed outside Veracruz, which is a walled city, and they needed the city because it had a port where, where, where American ships could unload in sheltered waters. Um, so the first thing they had to do was take the city. Um, and he was worried, Scott was worried that his troops, uh, you know, they, they laid siege to the city, but he was worried that if they waited too long, the yellow fever would start to kill his troops. Um, so to try to speed things up, he bombarded the civilian population of the city to force Veracruz into surrendering, and he was successful in doing that. Well, then he had to move all of his stuff up into the highlands, all of his men and all of his stuff up into the highlands. And as I mentioned, the Mexicans tried to block him at Cerro Gordo. Um, uh, it looked at first like they were going to succeed. Uh, in fact, the first the first day of the battle went their way almost entirely. Um, and then Scott was able to find a way to flank um, the Mexican forces um, and defeat them at Cerro Gordo. Um, then he had to move further up into the highlands. Um, the further the way this works, the higher up you are, the safer you are from mosquitoes. Um, and from the yellow fever, 
But at that point, he had another problem, another looming problem, or two other looming problems. First of all, there was a lot of guerrilla resistance um, that was making it very difficult for him to move any supplies and any troops up from Veracruz unless they went in very large convoys of wagons guarded by thousands of soldiers. But the second problem that he had was that the volunteers in his forces, the volunteer regiments, their enlistments uh, were for one year, and they were all about to expire. So he had to send them home because they refused to re-enlist. He asked, first he asked them to re-enlist and they refused to re-enlist. Almost, almost none of them re-enlisted. He had to send them home er, even early to get them out of the yellow fever zone um, before you get them on ships and out of the yellow fever zone um, because otherwise they would have all died. It would have ended his political, his political career right there. So then he had to sit there and wait for reinforcements. Eventually, new volunteer regiments were recruited. It was much harder to recruit them the second time around because by then most people realized, hey, this is not a pushover. Mexico is not a pushover. Lots of people are dying. Uh, why should we sign up for this? But eventually more volunteer regiments uh, arrive and he's able to push on to Mexico City. And even in the, in, the, in the vicinity of Mexico City, he has to fight a lot of very difficult battles uh, to, 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 to beat the Mexicans. And in the end, the decisive thing is the Mexicans can't really feed their troops. Um, ultimately, that's that's the most decisive thing in, in this entire war. Uh, so he's able to take Mexico City. And then um, from then, you know, only after he takes Mexico City, do serious negotiations actually really start. So generally, the war ends right around then. Um, I know you mentioned briefly some of the war atrocities that were committed. Uh, what were those and were there any American soldiers or generals that were punished for those crimes or atrocities? So the atrocities were, were in response to guerrilla attacks. Um, and in the North especially, when this happened, it was mostly small groups of soldiers acting like vigilantes, um, doing what they would have done in the American West. Well, they attacked us. Uh, let's go and find some of them and kill some of them. Um, very often, they can't find the actual guerrillas, but they can find Mexican civilians and they can, they can you know, wreak havoc on Mexican civilians. And, you know, really awful stuff we're talking about, okay? Um, what happens, with, which is really interesting um, in, in Scott's campaign in Veracruz, is he originally, his original idea is to try to prevent all of this. He believed that the guerrilla attacks in the North had happened after the volunteers had attacked Mexican civilians. He believed if he could keep his troops from attacking Mexican civilians, um, and, um, and he could prevent any kind of guerrilla warfare, and, then, and, 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 there, and there wouldn't be any atrocities. Well, he couldn't really control his troops, although he issued lots of decrees saying he would he would arrest anyone who did anything, um, because they were the same kind of volunteers that had been in the north, and 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 they were they bought into Jacksonian democracy, and they had come a long way to fight in this war, and they didn't think that they should stay away from the possessions of civilians, um, but also eventually um, the the American government and there's there, and the evidence of this is circumstantial only. Um, starts to sort of harness these atrocities to try to fight the guerrillas. You can tell this because they take soldiers um, and units that have been, that they know have committed atrocities in the north, and they deploy them in central Mexico in anti-guerrilla duties. So when you do that, you know what's going to happen, right? So they don't ever explicitly write orders saying, hey, it's okay to burn Mexican towns and kill Mexican civilians, but they send people that they know have burned Mexican towns and killed Mexican civilians to fight guerrillas in central Mexico. And they knew what was gonna happen, okay? Um, can I prove this? Is there a smoking gun? Could I make this case in a court of law? No, um, you know, they were too smart to put things on paper, 
but but they knew what they were doing, frankly. Um, so very few Mexican, uh, very few American soldiers were ever prosecuted for what they did to Mexican civilians. And there's two reasons for this. One is the one I just pointed out later. A lot of them did it with the um, implicit acceptance of American officers. But the other one, which really um, is true for both the North and for the center of the country, is that you've got to imagine these volunteer regiments. These are groups of buddies from small towns who sign up together, expect to fight in this war for a while, get some glory and get some loot and go home. Those kind of people are not going to testify against each other in court, right? They're just not going to. It would be like the end of their life to testify against their buddies in court. So it was very difficult for uh, American officers who wanted to stop atrocities, and there were American officers who wanted to stop them. It was very difficult for them to prosecute. Mexican, Mexican civilians were too scared to testify. American soldiers would not testify against other American soldiers. Okay. Uh, so, for instance, General, General Taylor in the North writes repeatedly to the War Department in Washington saying, this is what's going on. I can't stop it because they won't testify against each other. Okay. Um, the only thing he can do, and he tries to do this on a couple of occasions, is take units that are notorious for this and dishonor the units, um, criticize them in front of the army and dishonor them and send them to places where they won't be involved in anything interesting. Um, so it's this weird thing, and um, not weird, but it's actually a very common phenomenon. It's like it's you know, it's why police officers in the cases of unwanted killings, it's very difficult to find a police officer who will testify against another police officer because that's your social unit. These are your buddies, right? And being estranged from your buddies is a, is, is something, a place you don't want to go, right? And so the same thing is going on with these atrocities. So the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is eventually signed. Uh, what did that treaty dictate and what ramifications did that have for Mexico and the United States? So the most important thing that the treaty dictated was uh, Mexico gave up its, its claim to, Calif to, to Texas and it sold uh, what was then all called New Mexico and California um, to the United States. Now, New Mexico and California, well, that actually included, okay, all of Arizona, all of Nevada, um, all of Colorado, uh, 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 you know, little slices of other states, okay. Um, very small slices of other states. So it was huge. Okay. Um, the U.S. paid for this a few million dollars, right? Uh, American troops were to withdraw from Mexico. Now, what the Mexican uh, negotiators, negotiators fought for, knowing they were going to have to transfer this territory, was that they, they fought for um, um, the rights of the Mexicans within this territory. They tried to include um, um, clauses in the treaty that protected the rights of these people, A, to their land, okay, they, they, would, they would be hang on to their property that they had, but also that they would, they would be allowed to continue, um, they would have uh, protection um, for their Catholic religion, which was very important because this was a moment in American um, um, society where there's a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment, a lot of anti-Catholic um, newspaper articles, a lot of anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant sentiment, um, and so they knew that this was a problem. The trouble was that when that treaty was sent to the U.S. Senate for ratification, the U.S. Senate took those clauses out. And then it was sent back to Mexico for final ratification, and they had no power to do anything about that. They had to approve it the way the U.S. Senate had modified it. Um, but the biggest ratification was transferring all of this territory. It was a huge transfer. Okay? Um, it, it's ironic because 
you know, they, the U.S. went after this territory thinking that the important thing about the territory was that there would be farmland there. The answer was outside of California, there was very little farmland of any quality whatsoever. What the U.S. got that the U.S. was not looking for were lots and lots of minerals. Okay, so the you know the big mineral strike in California that led to the California Gold Rush happened right as the war was ending, right? Um, and then later, and this is something that most Americans forget, is there were lots and lots of strikes of of, of not only precious mil- uh, precious um, metals like gold and silver, but also of industrial metals like copper. Um, in all of the area of the Southwest that really fueled the American industrial economy um, um, as, it, as it grew later in the 19th century. So we got a huge bargain out of all of this, um, if you don't mind all the dead people. And just to ask some uh, concluding questions, did the outcome of the Mexican-American War have any influence on the lead up to the American Civil War? It had uh, a profound influence because once you add all this territory, the question is, what kind of social system is going to predominate in this territory? And in a moment in which the U.S. was you know, pretty delicately balanced between social systems depending in the North that depended upon free labor and social systems in the South that depended upon slave labor, the question is, what's going to happen, right? And the trouble of like trying to figure out what the balance there was going to be led pretty quickly um, to the American Civil War. Most of the, uh, everyone dug in their heels uh, uh, on this question. Um, uh, this made, made Southerners feel, uh, and not Southerners is, is, is the wrong word, wealthy Southerners um, feel that, well, slavery is, is at risk because if they can prevent its expansion, that means they can eventually get rid of it here. Um, it, it made um, uh, Northerners of all kinds feel, well, the Southerners want to have slavery in these territories, and if they have slavery in these territories, there will be you know, no economic opportunity for free people in these territories, and we want there to be economic opportunity for free people. So this led you know, pretty quickly to the Civil War, and there's a very direct connection. And how did the Mexican-American War affect Mexico? So in Mexico, their problem is they, they were a poor country before the war. Um, and they were a poorer country after the war, and they had just lost this war. So it starts debates in Mexico about, well, where do we go from here? Why did we lose? What went wrong? And what needs to happen to make this country stronger? And Mexico, uh, pretty quickly, uh, political sides, um, um, uh, political divisions grow in Mexico between liberals who say, well, the problem is that the War of Independence didn't go far enough. Becoming a republic by itself was not enough, and we have to reform Mexican society. And conservatives who believed that, well, the thing we really have to do is we have to emphasize our, our, our Hispanic nature of our civilization and our Catholic nature of our civilization um, and, and, and be who we are even, even more as a result of this war. And that leads to a civil war in Mexico. It's not nearly as, as, as violent and as long as the American Civil War, but it's violent enough and long enough. Um, um, and eventually the liberals went out in that civil war. And did the war lead to social, economic, or political change for either country? Um, I think more accurately, it led to future conflicts that that later led to change. So the Civil War really profoundly changes the U.S. Uh, It makes the federal government into a strong federal government. It it, free labor wins out um, over slave labor. 
Uh, the North industrializes even more during the Civil War, so the U.S. becomes even more of an industrial country. It's the the, the U.S. of today is is much more recognizable after the Civil War. You can. Um, than it is before the Civil War. Before the Civil War, the federal government is extremely weak. Um, um, you know, and, and there's and there's a lot of people who just aren't really connected to this economy. In Mexico, again, you know, after these civil wars between liberals and conservatives, Mexico becomes more recognizable. Um, you get the extension of railroads into Mexico um, that, and, um, and, 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 and liberal economic thinking that connect Mexico to the U.S. economy very thoroughly and, and, and lead very recognizably to the Mexican economy that we see today, one that's very much um, uh, tied to the U.S. economy. Um, uh, and so, so, yeah, Mexico also gets changed by these wars. And overall, what do you think the legacy of the Mexican-American War is? So for the U.S., it's um, the legacy is uh, how can I say this a, a, an even greater vision of U.S. superiority of that that we are a special nation that's more important than other nations that we are a particularly strong nation. Um, that's a very strong cultural legacy of this war and it influenced the writing about this war for a really really long time in the U.S. Um, you know that 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 is that is you know very much the legacy. In Mexico, basically the opposite happened in the sense of uh, Mexicans developed a bit of an inferiority complex, um, you know, especially because many Mexican um, ideas about the war after the war focused on the notion, which is a very erroneous notion, that Mexico lost this war because people weren't willing to fight for it. Uh, Mexico lost the war because of, of the poverty of the Mexican government, not because people were not willing to fight for it. But many Mexicans bought this idea that we weren't unified enough. We were fighting with each other. We should have been fighting the U.S., uh, people wouldn't sign up, um, and none of that is actually really true. Okay, uh, to the extent, you know, they, um, how can I say this? That it, it's really kind of overshadowed Mexican foreign relations from then until the present day. This sort of sense of inferiority. And what has been the most interesting aspect of your research into this war, or just general research that you've done into history? I love. Um, trying to understand social history, like how people lived their lives and what they thought was important, what they thought uh, life and family was supposed to be like, uh, what they thought were legitimate ways to make a living and illegitimate ways to make a living. Um, all those sorts of things, the sort of social history and cultural history of daily life, I like connecting that to the big events, things like big wars and the Industrial Revolution and, 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 and things like that, um, and showing that the, it's not that people just react to these great big events and forces, they shape these great big events and forces. And I'm really very passionate about that. And that's really, you know, and I, all three of my books are in some sense about that. Um, and so for me, the most rewarding moments in an archive is when I find some document in, where I, in which, you know, someone is, some, you know, relatively obscure person is saying something which makes this kind of connection. Uh, you know, so a Mexican woman, talking about, well, they, they just conscripted, you know, my, my husband for the army. And this is a real problem because we don't have anyone to, to you know, the economy, you know, our, our family economy depends on both of us working. What am I going to do now? Right. Um, um, or, for instance, uh, a lot of these volunteers uh, that, that joined American volunteers who joined up to fight in the Mexican War, they left their little hometowns in Tennessee and Kentucky and wherever 
And they left them right at an age where they would normally have been courting women and trying to marry, right? And so they're writing home and asking for news about their potential girlfriends. And the people back home who are writing them are giving them that news. It's, it's like gossip, right? But behind that gossip is this anxiety of like, hey, we've interrupted our lives for this. Normally we would be you know, looking for a wife and settling down now. And we got to make sure there's a place for us when we go back. So that sort of thing really um, excites me. And my final question is, what advice do you have for young people getting into the field of history or that, that just have an interest in history? My big advice is, is there's many, many different kinds of history. Don't worry about doing what other people think you should do or what's fashionable at the moment. Look for things that interest you, the things that you're really passionate about. And then once you start to understand kind of what is exciting to you, um, you know, try to the extent that you can to get involved with primary sources early on um, because they're fascinating. They're absolutely fascinating. Um, and too many people will sit there and they'll, they'll, they'll read what somebody like me writes and they'll leave it there. Right. And uh, what you what you really need to do is to get your hands dirty in the primary sources. And young people today have opportunities I did not have. There's so much available on the Internet today. So many things that have been scanned. Um, that are available in databases where they're, they're searchable. Um, this is all stuff that, you know, when I started out in this, you know, which you know, was a long time ago, more than 30 years ago, it was, there was nothing like this. I mean, you want to read an old newspaper, 19th century newspaper, you had to go to a library and literally turn the pages of this crumbling newspaper um, to do it. And, and only libraries would only have a few. You wouldn't have all the newspapers available in the country in one place. Um, you know, you guys have opportunities that I, I never really had. So we just had an interview with Dr. Gardino. I definitely hope you enjoyed that. I think we were able to cover a pretty much the entire war, uh, the lead up to it, what actually happened during the war and the aftermath, uh, which is kind of what I was more focused on because again, I think it's one of these critical events that leads us into the American Civil War because of the rapid expansion of the United States and all this new territory. And I think another interesting aspect of this war is it's one of the first sort of interventionist wars and expansionist wars or imperialist wars, as some people call them, that we kind of see in American history. Now, in 1823, uh, the Monroe Doctrine under James Monroe, who was president at the time, developed this sort of policy that believed that the United States would dictate policy in the Western Hemisphere. So European powers and European empires would not be welcome to expand uh, into uh, the United States, even though um, there were certain empires that still certainly had colonies in the Western Hemisphere, the United States foreign policy goals from that point going forward was to basically that we would be the shock collars in the Western Hemisphere and that we would be the ones sort of dictating what was going on. And the goal was to keep European powers out of that. And not that the Mexican-American War was a direct policy goal out of it, but it was sort of this idea, this idea of manifest destiny and the belief a belief that the United States sort of had the right to expand territorially. So again, this sort of leads the United States into this path. I think the other key example uh, in the 1800s, 1900s is the Spanish-American War, which really set off, which is probably more of an imperialist, interventionist war than the Mexican-American War is. But I think it's sort of a very long prelude to sort of the way that 
we would be conducting foreign policy. I'm currently taking a contemporary foreign policy class at um, my university right now. It's interesting to see how these conflicts, how the United States has sort of tried to act sort of as a world power pretty much from the founding, even as a lot of the founders sort of believed in this little republic mantra that they developed the constitution, how rapidly in just 50 years the United States had basically been able to acquire territory from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast. I mean, it was a very rapid expansion. And it's even later that we acquired territories like Alaska, and then obviously during the Spanish-American War, that the acquisition of the Philippines and Cuba and uh, different islands, or in Hawaii, for example, the United States sort of has been a mini empire in many ways, even though on the surface, it hasn't necessarily been, it hasn't necessarily been seen that way. And I think the Mexican-American War, while I think is a critical event because again, it leads, it supercharges tensions between the North and South and the lead up to the American Civil War. I also think it's a past example of the way the United States has sort of tried to expand uh, territorially, especially in the first, you know, century of its existence when it wasn't sort of the superpower that we kind of know of it today in the way that we know it after World War II. Um, so that was pretty much everything that I had. I hope you kind of enjoyed that interview. I know that I definitely learned a lot. I hope you guys learned a lot. I think the Mexican-American War, again, uh, definitely was is an important event in American history that often gets overlooked. And for uh, Mexico, too, I think, again, it had serious effects on that country as well, who had only just gained independence. Um, so feel free uh, to subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or follow us on um, Instagram or Facebook at History Does You to keep up with uh, different things coming up. Um, and next week, again, we'll be covering uh, the the Arab Spring, and I have some interviews lined up uh, for this following week. So we'll definitely, you know, pretty much be set uh, up through 18 episodes. Um, and my current plan right now is to get to uh, 20 episodes uh, and then take a, probably a week or two off um, to see if I can work on um, getting some music or something like that, just kind of making it a little bit more smoother. So the transitions between, you know, interviews and my analysis isn't as kind of rough as it has been in the, uh, you know, obviously throughout the season. Um, and I'm definitely, again, if you guys ha uh, have recommendations or you have topics or you have authors that you would like me to interview, you know, always feel free to reach out. I really enjoy receiving feedback, positive or negative. Again, I'm always trying to improve it. So if feel free to give honest feedback, because again, I want to try and improve this and, you know, take this as far as I possibly can, because again, I think history teaches us a lot of lessons uh, yeah, so uh, this is episode 15. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, definitely feel free to look at some of our other episodes. We have a lot of other episodes that are super interesting. And I think uh, if you definitely find something that you would, an area that or a topic that you would certainly uh, like another listen.